All right, let's continue to worship, shall we, by turning in our Bibles to Revelation 19. Revelation chapter 19, if you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers and they'll be certain to get one into your hands. This is part two of a sermon about the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. A glorious reality someday that is worth our attention and our anticipation, even our affection. The marriage supper of the Lamb so that we would hold fast until it comes. It's worthy of our attention and our anticipation so that we would hold fast all the more until it gets here. You know, like an engaged couple, you've seen them who are, they're, they're anticipating their wedding and like how many days left and they not only give you the days, but they give you the hours. It, it, it's happened to me, I've, I've asked several of them. It's like an engaged couple who anticipates their wedding. You know, the closer it gets, the more they think about it, the more they smile, and the more they hold fast to one another. I hope that's you. I hope that's us as a church. Full of hope and full of faith until our big day. And it's all found right here in Revelation 19, verses 6 to 10. And so I want to get at it. We have a lot to cover. You follow along with me. I'm going to read these five verses. We'll review last week and then we'll jump in to the remaining truths. Verse six, the apostle John is writing. He says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Verse 10, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The first truth that we found last week about the marriage supper of the Lamb is that it's part of the gospel. And that is the good news of restoration, the testimony of Jesus, and the culmination of all our hope. You see, broken by our sin, a day is coming when our face-to-face -face fellowship with God will be restored. Restored. It's part of what Jesus embodied, part of his testimony, and it's the fulfillment of all our anticipation. All of it. Second, we found last week that it's a wedding celebration. A marriage ceremony and reception all in one. A wedding between us and Jesus like old times. Like first century Jewish marriages. Except ours is going to be a celebration that never ends on the new earth. A perfect setting for perfect fellowship with a perfect Savior. That was part one. Part two then begins with the truth that I hope increases your awe of God's word and God's plan like few other things. Because the marriage supper of the lamb wasn't an afterthought on God's part, 
but a forethought. Part of his design and arrangement, catch this, some 800 plus years before John ever put pen to paper here in Revelation. In other words, it's a prophecy of old. That's the next truth about the marriage supper of the Lamb. The third of six, it's a prophecy of old. Lest you think that it's just found at the end of Revelation here in chapter 19. To see this prophecy, why don't you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 25. We're going to come back to Revelation 19, but for now, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 9. Isaiah 25, right about the middle of your Bible. Verses 6 to 9. Prophesying about 725 B.C., 725 B.C., Isaiah says in verse 6, On this mountain, that's Mount Zion that he was referring to, where Jerusalem sits, representing God's kingdom, mountains in those days were considered the seats of power, the center of power for a kingdom whether it was a, a little bitty fiefdom or whether it was something that was far more broad, a, a mountain would be an indicator of the seat of power in the center of the rule and reign. And Isaiah says, on God's behalf, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, check this out, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. In other words, at some point in the future, Isaiah says, God is going to kill the fatted calf. He's going to kill the fatted calf and he's going to throw a party, a celebration. Verse 7, and he will swallow up on this mountain that is in his kingdom. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And he tells us what that is. He will swallow up death forever. That's the covering that God will someday remove, the cloud that's hanging over us, the cloud of death. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. That is the false accusations of persecution, reproach. He'll take that away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Verse 9, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It's kind of like a groom who's standing at the head of the aisle near the altar and suddenly his bride, soon to be, appears at the back and he's like, this is it. This is, this is my bride, like turning to the past. This is her. Only it's going to be reversed in that day. He's going to come down the aisle. He's going to come from above. And we're going to say, this is our God. We're going to be poking the person next to it. This is him. This is him. He's here. The wait is over. It's a prophecy first spoken 
725 years before Christ that God reiterated 65 years after Christ when he gave the Apostle John the vision of Revelation 19. Reiterated, I say, reiterated because it's a prophecy of old with the same characteristics. The same characteristics. Both prophecies, Isaiah and Revelation, share the same characteristics, leading to the conclusion that they're speaking of the same thing. Six characteristics here for you. The first is the same name. The same name. They use the same name for God. In Isaiah, it's Lord of hosts. You see it there? The Lord God, Lord God Almighty. I'm struggling to find it. Lord God, Lord Yahweh, Lord has spoken. End of verse 8. This is our God. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Same name, Yahweh, Lord of hosts. Yahweh over all. In Revelation, it's God the Almighty. God over all. Lord of hosts, God over all, God the Almighty. Same name. Two prophecies, same name, leading to the conclusion that they're speaking of the same event. The second characteristic that they share is the same crowd. Same crowd. The Lord of hosts, there it is, verse 6. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. Or as John says it, a great multitude. Who we know from Revelation chapter 7 is comprised of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All peoples. Same name for God. Lord of hosts, God Almighty, God the Almighty. Same crowd. All peoples, multitude. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. Third, third characteristic they share is the same kind of celebration. The Lord of hosts, verse 6 again. Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Just like the wedding celebration in Revelation 19 because that's what you do for weddings. You kill the fatted calf. You roll out the absolute best of what there is to drink. Like the wedding of Canaan, where Cana, the wedding of Cana, where Jesus turned water into fine wine, and the master of the feast scolded the bridegroom for not starting with it. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, he will. The bridegroom will start with the best and carry it on through all eternity. Same celebration. And then fourth, there's the same kingdom. Same kingdom here. The mountain of God. His rule and reign in the new Jerusalem as we saw last week. Revelation 21. And fifth is the same relief. Same relief. Relief in three different ways. First of all, from the shadow of death that hovers over us. Verse 8 again. He will swallow up death forever. Which is one of the reasons that we need not fear as we walk through its shadow. Need not. Because it's all going to be removed one day. The pall that hangs over us, the cloud that overshadows us, even now as we speak, all of us on our way to dying, unless the Lord were to come back first, that cloud, that death is going to be removed. It's going to be sunny skies. I can see clearly now for all eternity. Death is going to be removed, as will the tears on our faces. How good is this one? 
We're going to get relief from death and relief from sorrow. Relief from sorrow. Verse 8 says, The Lord God will wipe away tears, tears from all faces. Tears of remorse for sins committed. As best as I can tell, tears of regret for opportunities missed to share the gospel, to extend love, to show compassion, mercy, grace. God's going to wipe all away all of our tears for, of regret for those kinds of opportunities that are missed, tears of grief for those in hell. He's going to wipe them away and he's going to give us eternal relief. Just like it says in Revelation 21 verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Same relief is spoken through Isaiah. There's relief from death. There's relief from sorrow. And praise God, there's relief from persecution Relief from persecution. Verse 8 again. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Here it is. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. That is, he'll bring an end to the accusations of wrong leveled against us. That's the idea of the word reproach. Accusations of wrongdoing. Accusations of wrong motive. Accusations of wrong speech. Wrong thoughts. Wrong perspectives. Wrong worldview. He's going to take all of that away, he says. Accusations from those who reject God and reject his word. It's going to be taken away. Those who reject God and reject his word and think that we are hateful for holding to it. Do you realize that that is the overwhelming cultural spirit these days in these United States? That if you hold to a biblical ethic, a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview on any issue, you are a bigot. You are hateful. You are wrong. You are to be scolded. You are to be shamed. You are to be canceled. It's the spirit of the age. And one day God's going to remove it. He's going to remove accusations from people who hate us for holding to a biblical ethic on homosexuality and transgenderism, crime and immigration, abortion, and every other issue of the day. God is going to give us relief from those who oppose us on those things and oppose him on those things. Relief from name-calling like bigot and hater. Relief from derogatory labels like racist and transphobe. Relief from efforts to marginalize us and push us to the periphery of society and culture. Like relief is coming someday. Relief is coming. And that should not only encourage us, but it should bolster our resolve to hold fast because this too shall pass. It's going to get worse, but it's not going to last forever. 
And that should encourage us and bolster us to stand firm and hold fast to a biblical worldview on any and every issue that comes down the pipeline. It's particularly important this month. And I felt so compelled these last couple of weeks to speak about this. Pride Month. This, this point right here, God in his sovereignty, is so particularly important and precious to us. Pride Month troubles me greatly, more and more. Not only because it's wrong, but because it's forced on us, advocated over and over and over. But listen, no matter how many times something false is said, it's still not true. Rest assured, no matter how many times something is repeated over and over, something false, it's still not true. Just because more and more people are getting on the bandwagon doesn't mean that something is true. No matter what people think of you for speaking the truth or what names you're called, it doesn't make you wrong. We can and we must stand firm and hold fast against those who want to impose an LGBTQIA plus ideology on every facet of our culture. And many do. Many want to. We can, because relief is coming, and the power of God resides within us, we can stand firm and hold fast, and we must. We can and we must hold firm when that ideology is sought to be imposed on every student and every teacher and every employee and every customer and every business and every, every bureaucracy under the sun. And we can do that. We can stand firm because relief is coming. We must stand firm for the sake of truth and for the sake of souls and for the sake of all that is good and right. All that is best for our culture. All that is best for living a peaceful life, as Paul told Timothy, that we should pray for. We can and we must. We can stand firm and we must when those close to us begin to question God's word on these issues. All oh, this is where it comes down to brass tacks really quickly. We've seen families in our church when a loved one or a close friend comes out, a sibling maybe, and they identify as a gender that they're not or they proclaim something about their sexuality that's contrary to reality. We've seen those families begin to do away with the biblical perspective, to do away with what God's word says on it so as to somehow keep the relationship as best they can in the name of love when really they're doing one of the most unloving things they can possibly do and that is cease to speak the truth to them. We can and we must stand firm when those close to us question God's word on these issues. Again, when they identify as a gender that they're not or they proclaim something about their sexuality that's contrary to God's design. 
We can and we must for, for their sake and ours. We must hold fast. Same for when we're called names or criticized or intimidated or even fired for refusing to use pronouns that are divorced from reality. Words either mean things or they don't mean things. And they mean things. If they don't mean things, then there's no meaning whatsoever in the world. And you can believe anything and everything that you want, which some people advocate and do. And what is left at the end of that? Utter futility and utter chaos. And yet more and more, believers are being criticized, canceled, even fired for using for failing to use pronouns, for refusing to condone someone's confusion or to participate in their perception. We must hold fast. We can. And so we must. And last but not least, we can and we must hold fast and stand firm in loving those who hate us because of our stand, because of our biblical worldview, because of our position. We must stand firm in loving them. We must stand firm in praying for those who level such falsehoods, whether face-to-face -face or on social media or in the print and generally speaking or whatever it is in whatever form, whatever way it comes down. We must pray for them. We must love them and we must pray for them. We must pray for them in order to love them. And we must welcome them into our church. Hear me, hear me. We must love them by welcoming them into our church, especially those who struggle with these things. Those who are wrestling with strange feelings and strange thoughts and things that they're seeing out there on TikTok and who knows where else. We must welcome those who are searching for the truth. That doesn't mean compromising the truth. That doesn't mean failing to speak the truth. That doesn't mean withholding the truth. That doesn't mean cutting the truth in half. It means speaking it all and showing grace upon grace to those who are soft. It means speaking it in love with a motive that they would recognize the error of their thoughts and their ways and they would turn to Jesus. Not just turn away from the homosexuality or the transgenderism or, or, or anything else like that, but, but that they would turn away from that and turn to Jesus. The answer is not conservatism as opposed to liberalness. The answer is Jesus. The answer is the gospel. We must love them. That doesn't mean compromising the truth. It means showing grace upon grace to those who are soft. It means speaking the truth in love. And it means genuinely loving those who consider us enemies patient with them all. Oh God, help me on that last one. And I imagine the same is true for you. God, help us on that as well. Genuinely loving them who consider us their enemies. And by God's grace, we can do it. And you know why. A, 
because the riches of God's strength are inexhaustible within us. The riches of God's strength are inexhaustible. And B, this too shall pass. Relief is coming. That's the fifth common characteristic. And then last, the last common characteristic between Isaiah's prophecy of old and John's prophecy in Revelation is salvation. Salvation. Talk about the answer being Jesus. Talk about the answer being the gospel. It will be said on that day, verse 9, Isaiah 25, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. This is the poke your neighbor moment. I can't wait for that moment. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It's relief from waiting and the completion of our salvation. Just like we read in Revelation 22, verse 3, when we see God's face, face to face, we see God's face, and we worship him for all eternity. I hope that that increases your awe. Your awe of God's word, God's plan, and God himself. Because the marriage supper of the lamb wasn't an afterthought, but a forethought. A prophecy some 800 years before John with the same characteristics. And not just an afterthought, but a forethought with a prophecy to reiterate it in Revelation so that what's, we can look forward to what's to come, but also a forethought that we can apply in the moment and hold fast to all that is good and true and right and best. Amen? Amen. Characteristics for all eternity. Fourth, fourth truth about the marriage supper of the Lamb is that it's affirmed by Jesus. It's affirmed by Jesus. Prophesied of old and affirmed by Jesus. Foreshadowing what John would say. In other words, Jesus, Jesus is the bridge between Isaiah and Revelation. Jesus is. He spoke of this as, as well. Affirming the certainty of the marriage supper. The certainty of our life to come. As if we need more than what Isaiah said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Or what John said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We don't need any more. But God affirmed it through his son, our Savior Jesus. So good. And Jesus affirmed it two ways. First in parables. First in parables. Earthly stories with spiritual meanings. Like the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. And I'd love for you to see that as well. So from Isaiah, turn to Matthew 22, verses 1 to 10, will you? I don't want to just talk about these things. I want you to see them in God's word. Nothing makes me crazier than I'll be either listening to a sermon or listening to a podcast and somebody will state things that are true about the Bible and I'll be like, yes, amen. And then they just don't tell me where it's found or they don't quote the scripture itself. I'm like, say the name, say the word, speak the word. That's where the power is. So that's why I want you to turn there and see it. Matthew 22, first gospel of the New Testament, starting in verse 1. You follow along. Going to verse 10. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. Again, spiritual, uh, earthly stories with spiritual meanings, parables. Saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared 
to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. It doesn't take much to connect those dots. The kingdom of heaven, the mountain, may be compared, eternity, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, a marriage supper, and sent his servants, like us as we saw in Revelation 19, fellow servants, sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, just like we see in Revelation 19, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Just like Isaiah said, a feast of rich food full of marrow. Jesus affirms it. Verse 5, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. You know, the things of the world, the cares of the world. One to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, the enemies of God, the enemies of his people, seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Just like John says the wicked culture of Babylon will do in the great tribulation, Revelation 17. Just like is starting to happen already here and certainly around the world. Forty-some believers were killed in Uganda just this past week by Muslim Fulani tribesmen. Forty-three killed. Homes burned. I think that qualifies as persecution, Babylon on the rise. Jesus affirms it. Verse 7, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. That sounds a lot like Revelation 18, doesn't it? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She will be burned up with fire. Verse 8, then he said to his servants, this proverbial king in this parable that Jesus is speaking, then the king said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests, a multitude of guests. What Isaiah prophesied, Jesus affirms. A marriage supper is coming, a wedding feast given by a king for his son, a glorious celebration for all who will come. He affirms that indeed it's real, using a parable to get the point across. And then in Luke 13, 29, he just says it straight up. He says that people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table, at table in the kingdom of God. Another reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb, all of which affirms the truth of it all. And if that's not enough, he affirms it again at the Last Supper. First in parables, and then at the Last Supper. I love this one. I hope that you do too. Can't wait to share in the remembrance of the Last Supper next time. The Last Supper being the meal that Jesus shared with his 12, the 12 apostles before his 
death. And it's the very thing that we commemorate on a regular basis. Don't miss that. It's the very thing that we commemorate on a regular basis. After taking the cup and declaring that it represents his blood to guarantee our salvation, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. With you. In my Father's kingdom. At the marriage supper of the Lamb. In God's new Jerusalem kingdom on the new earth. Jesus affirms it. Which means every time we eat and drink at the Lord's table, we not only remember his death and proclaim his salvation until he comes, but we look to the future when we celebrate his coming. We don't just remember his death, thanking him for it, proclaiming his salvation, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, but we also should be anticipating the celebration that's coming at the Last Supper. Just like the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples anticipated the Lord's Supper that we partake, the Lord's Supper anticipates the marriage supper. They're all connected, affirmed by Jesus himself. And when you get right down to it, it's a call to holiness. The marriage supper of the Lamb is a call to holiness. A call to walk in the light instead of the darkness. A theme that the Apostle John pounded in his epistles of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, before he wrote Revelation, that we ought to walk in the light, we ought to walk in righteousness, we ought to walk in holiness instead of darkness, wickedness, sinfulness. We ought to uh, walk in devotion instead of popularity. That's what this is here, the Mary Supper of the Lamb. It's a call to walk in devotion to the Lord, not popularity to culture. Turn back with me to Revelation 19 for this one, verses 7 and 8. We covered the first part of verse 7 last week, but not the last part of verse 7 and not verse 8. Let us rejoice, verse 7, and exult and give him the glory. Give God the glory, the multitude says. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, here it is, and his bride, the church, as we found last week, his bride has made herself ready. Just read that phrase again. It was granted to her, verse 8, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Implied in the statement, his bride has made herself ready, is a call to make sure that we do it. To make sure that we're indeed ready to meet our master. To make sure that we are indeed ready to meet our God. Because it doesn't just happen understatement of the year. You know that and I know that. Our holiness, our readiness doesn't just happen on any given day in any given hour. You, you have to work at it. Oh, we, we don't like to use that word sometimes because we're afraid that it's going to turn into like a works-based righteousness or works-based salvation. That's not in, at all the intent. And it's certainly not the intent of the Apostle Paul who told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, Train yourself for godliness, as in work 
at godliness. And to this end, Paul says, we toil and strive. We sweat and we labor for righteousness. We sweat and toil and strive for holiness and for godliness. Making sure that you're ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb is a call to holiness. That's the idea of the fine linen, bright and pure. There, there's not one aspect of, of sin around. We need to We need to work in the strength that God provides to live in such a way that we're ready for him to take us. Whether by death or his return. The bride has made herself ready. What kind of clothes are you wearing? But praise God, we're not on our own on this. It's not as if God saves us and then sets us loose to fend for ourselves. You know, strips us of the old man, our old nature, and just leaves us naked. Not at all. Not at all. He gives us new clothes. He gives us new clothes. Bright and pure, verse 8. Or as Isaiah says it in Chapter 61 of his prophecy, he clothes us in robes of righteousness, including righteous deeds here in the second part of verse 8. The fine linen that we are given is the righteous deeds of the saints. So God not only declares us righteous when he saves us, justifies us is the biblical term. He not only declares us righteous when he saves us, he gives us righteous things to do and the strength to do them. The strength to be righteous. The strength to be holy. The strength to be godly. The power to do so. The inclination to do so. The ability to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. He gives us the strength. Don't squander that. Don't squander the robe of righteousness that you've been clothed with. Don't squander the declaration of holiness that you've been given in God's sight. Don't waste it. Don't waste what God grants. Use it for his glory and make yourself ready. Be holy as he is holy. Heed the call. Heed the call. And then last, the sixth truth about the marriage supper of the Lamb is that it's an invitation-only event. It's an invitation-only event. No party crashers. No imposters. No pretenders. Only those who are welcome. Only those who have been invited. Verse 9, look at it. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Invited. Invited to the celebration of the ages. Blessed are those who are chosen to dwell with God forever and ever. Blessed are those who are called to supper. When we were growing up, we, my brothers and I were, were growing up, and we're out and about in the yard, in the woods, in the garage, or wherever it was, we didn't dare 
come to the kitchen, come to the supper table until mom called us. And when she did call us, we knew we better get there. Not only because what she said went, but because if we didn't get there, it would be eaten without us. But short of that call, short of that dinner's ready, we didn't show up. And we didn't dare pick and choose this and that on the table beforehand. We had to be invited. And we well knew we were privileged to be so. Blessed are those who are called to supper. No invitation, no admittance. No reservation, no seat at the table. But if you are invited, man, it's a blessing, an honor, the hottest ticket in town, just to be invited. It doesn't say, check it out there, in verse 9, it doesn't say, blessed are those who go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who arrive at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who show up. No, no, no. It says, blessed are those who are invited. Just invited. Why? Because the event is that good. The event is that good. The event is that certain. And your presence is that sure. That's sure. That's the implication. If you're called, if you're invited, if you're chosen, you're going. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. But that doesn't mean you can just ignore the invitation and fail to respond. You know, like some people do with wedding invitations. It made us crazy back in the day when we were marrying off our girls. Not only because we were holding our side and hemorrhaging money, but because some people just didn't RSVP. I don't even know what in the world that means, but I know it means respond, at least. Some people just wouldn't do it. They would just ignore the invitation. And so we didn't have a seat for them at the table, at the reception. It doesn't mean just because you're invited implying that you're going guaranteed. It doesn't mean that you can just ignore the invitation and fail to respond. It doesn't mean that you can just ignore the gospel plea, the gospel call that you have heard in the course of your life or that you're hearing now from me, maybe for the first time or for the upteenth time. It doesn't mean that you can just ignore it. You have to respond. An RSVP is not just appreciated, but it's required. An RSVP in the form of faith and repentance. You have to believe. You have to repent. You have to receive. You have to respond to the invitation. In fact, that's how you know you're invited. Some people wonder when they see phrases like this in the Bible, well, how do I know if I'm called? How do I know if I'm chosen? How do I know if I'm elect? How if I know if I, that, I'm, that I'm one of God's, that he has chosen before the foundation of the world? Ephesians chapter 1. How do I know? How do I know? You know if you respond. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Romans 10.9. You do that, you respond, you RSVP like that, and you know you're invited and have a guaranteed seat at the table. For everyone, the Bible says, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Everyone who calls on Jesus to forgive them of their sins, cleanse them from all unrighteousness, save them from the consequences of their sin to an eternity at the marriage supper of the Lamb, everyone who calls on him will show up, will be saved. God's invitation and our response go hand in hand. Hand in hand to equal certain blessing. That's why it just says, blessed are those who are invited. It implies that you respond and you're going. So whatever you do, when it comes to an invitation, make sure you have one. Make sure you have one. Make sure you're invited. And you can do that right now by admitting you're a sinner, believing in Jesus, repenting of your sin, and receiving him as Lord. Admit, believe, repent, and receive. R-S-V-P. I just decided that's what it stands for. <laughs> Make sure you're blessed now to be blessed later, guaranteed. And then get ready, holding fast in holiness and godliness for a celebration of great joy that never ends. Let's pray. Lord, we can't wait. We can't wait. We can't wait for the day when we say to one another, this, this is our God. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Oh, Lord, fill our hearts with the anticipation of that, will you? Even now, Lord, make us walk out of here with hearts that are bursting at the seams for what you've done in us this morning. Fill our hearts with anticipation. Fill our souls with these truths. And let us be glad even now. For your glory, God, let us be now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.